Welcome and thank you for joining us on The Breakthrough Factor, a podcast where your host, Jess Boss, interviews entrepreneurs, athletes, and financial professionals to find out what it takes to break through barriers to health, wealth, and taking ownership of your life. If you're feeling stuck in your career or seeking advice on how to overcome obstacles all the way to building your fitness and finances, this is a show for you. The things in life that are pressed upon you without your choice do not have to define you, but they can inform you. In this episode, Mark and I talk about how his formative years and his ADHD diagnosis could have, and maybe should have, put him on a path toward destruction. Instead, with the generosity and care of a few people early in life and throughout, he chose and continues to make one small change every day and relentlessly pursues better. Hi friends, it is me, Jess Bost, and today we have another episode of The Breakthrough Factor. And today with me, I have Mark Newfield. Mark is the founder of the Bleakley Financial Group of Virginia. Uh, he did he founded that in 2005. And for the last 16 years, he has been the coach and lead advisor for the firm as well as its CEO. Prior to graduating from university, he was an auto mechanic in the, and in the auto parts industry and also spent time as a retail store manager. So he's an advisor and a fixer by nature. Mark holds an accounting degree from the Virginia Commonwealth University, as well as the CFP and RICP designations, along with insurance licenses, Series 766. He is thoroughly invested in this industry as a leader and expert. As you're about to see, once we get past these formal introductions, he is also very fun to talk to, has an awesome sense of humor, one of my favorite people on Twitter. So welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm sure we'll have a fascinating conversation. I'm sure that we will. I um, One of my favorite things about you, actually, is that you're very sarcastic. So I really hope that comes through today. <laughs> Um, because I'll do my best. I mean, I just, I love that. Um, to me, it's a, it's a marker of someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously. And, um, and it, it's really refreshing and easy to be around those people for me. So, well, there's, there's actually a study that I will do my best. You may have to censor certain parts of this. Um, there's actually a study that, um, that I threw out some time ago and I forget where it came from. Um, and, and which uh, Brian Portnoy attested to as well, that uh, sarcastic people with foul mouths are very high IQ. <laughs> so if I just, I can just pretend on that level as well. <laughs> oh. uh, you, you take that however you wish. I'm going to promote <laughs> that data all day just because it's confirmation bias, but I don't care. It works for me. Bias. Well, I, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's refreshing and fun, makes it easy to be around you. So don't, don't hold back on that. Um, but one of the things, and actually this is a quote from you, um, you said, I'm surprised I'm even alive to tell my story today. This was back from when we were talking before. So a little sarcasm there because you are alive. This is your story. Um, and I absolutely love your story. Uh, it was nothing that I ever expected and um, I appreciate you just being willing to 
take us back and share growing up Mark, uh, who he was before he is Mark Newfield of Bleakley Financial. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that, but when we're done, I'm going to ask you a question because I want to know what you expected. Okay. Um, but let's leave that for later. We'll leave it. Um, no, geez. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the brief answer, I, I guess, to that is I was an auto mechanic coming out of high school, eventually went to college, um, graduated from college two weeks before I turned 30. Um, I joined what's now Accenture when it was, I think, about 3,500 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was probably the only 30 year old rookie in their recruiting class of the year of 1987, because, you know, they're hiring Harvard MBAs, et cetera. Um, made it through there for 14 years. When I left the firm it was about 87,000 people. Oh, uh, it was an, an amazing education, but just was no longer the right thing for me to be doing. You said, um, you said 3,500 when you started? It was about 3,500 people. I think there were like 20 partners when I left there was a couple thousand partners and 87,000 people wow okay wow yeah yeah and and I just had come to the realization that my goal when I joined the firm was to become a partner in the firm Mm -hmm. and like many people's goals they change over time and I got to a point where I was like you know what fine business wonderful people not my fate um and for a variety of reasons left the firm um, I did a short stint in corporate America, doing IT strategy for a major bank. Hmm. Proved to me that I never want to work in corporate America. <laughs> I've learned that I'm a really, really, let me choose my words carefully, poor employee. Poor employee. <laughs> I'm a poor employee. I'm not a good employee. <laughs> um, I don't follow directions very well. It's a good function of ADHD, which we can talk about later. Yeah. Uh, and then in 2005, my own advisor had been telling me that I should get into the business. And I was like, no way. I'm not a salesperson. have no interest in that. Uh, but I do like consulting and yeah. a consult consultative process that I always have. It was my entire career. Um, and I had always been interested. Even in, in, in college, I built a spreadsheet on uh, Lotus123 for you, all you old people. Um, that factored in inflation, compounded rates of return, social security law at the time, and figured out that if I saved 12% of every dollar I made starting at age 30 until age 65, I could retire on $100,000 a year after tax. So I, so I was like, okay, I had an interest. Yeah. And, and my own advisor was like, you should get into this business because I would debate his planning methodology and approach. It's probably a very bad client too, um, but but in any case, you know, I'd saved a few dollars, and I knew I wasn't going to go back to corporate America, and I had a nice little severance agreement that gave me two years worth of income, so I took some time off, interviewed a bunch of firms, and got started in the business with a, a large insurance broker dealer, um, and that was seventeen years ago. It'll be eighteen in October. That's kind of how I got here. Yeah. yeah. And if you want to go farther back, my mom was an alcoholic. She's deceased. My parents divorced when I was seven and my father moved to New York. We were living in Fairfax, Northern Virginia. Um, so didn't see him for a while. Um, and my mom was an alcoholic. So, you know, along about the age of 17, I actually, well, 
we can go into that as much as you want, but I'd lived in a number of places and eventually by the time I was 17 was out on my own. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, to me the, and you asked the question, what did I expect? Uh, or what, you know, what did I, what was my, um, my idea of what your life had been prior to finance and, and quite honestly, I just, I pictured Mark Newfield with a dad who had his own firm and, um, you know, Mark grew up in it. And at some point in time along the way, his dad passed it along to Mark and Mark carried the torch. And now he's continuing to build out an, you know, an already, already successful, not to take anything away from you. It just, the, probably a lot of my, uh, own biases about how white men get into the industry. So I'm working that out too, along with everybody else here. So, you know, I, I mean, just honestly, that's, the, I, I don't, when somebody asked me. Well, if you want an image of somebody who failed at two other careers and stumbled their way into this one, that would be me. That would be you. And it's so, it's so wonderful for me to talk to people like you and for you to challenge these pieces of my brain and, um, and my heart even that have not been touched yet that I know still have built in bias and that I know still have an effect on the way that I, I make space for people and that I treat for people. So the, your story of growing up and the, the tenacity that you had to keep going for one, but also the fact that I mean, there were moments in in your story from what we talked about where it could have gone either way. Like Mark Newfield could have been a druggie on the side of the road that was homeless, or he could have turned into this you know this successful advisor with a you know phenomenal career that he had built from the ground up. It could have gone either way, and I think the what we're going to find out by the end of this episode is my goal is what, what, what steered you that direction? How, like, how did you get to this outcome as opposed to that outcome? So if I knew that I would write the singular most popular book ever written and I'd be a gazillionaire. All right. So that's um, what I get to do. I, I would, Hey, well, uh, no, I have zero interest in writing. I'd like to write, but I'm, mm. I can't see myself writing a book. No. No. Um, I, I write once a month for seven or eight hours and that those are my weekly blog posts. Mm. Um, but, um, the ones that are on your website, there's yeah. And, and I try and publish one once a week. I haven't been successful recently, but, and I have wonderful excuses, but oh. Uh, we'll get back to that. That's I wrote right. three this past Thursday, so they'll get out there. Yeah, yeah good. I, I, I tell you, I wish I knew. I, I would, growing up, I was very much, and I'm still pretty much a quant scientist kind of person. I mean, I'm not quant, like I don't have a CFA. I don't have a PhD in physics, but I am very quantitatively oriented. And for some reason, and I, I have no explanation other that I have, certain moments that were just epiphanies, pure and simple. I don't know how else to describe them. So I've developed a certain level of faith 
simply from my own life experiences. And, and the first one was, you know, I was, I don't know, 20, 21, 20, somewhere in that area. It's long enough ago that I don't remember the exact age. But I was sitting in a house that we rented in Falls Church and had five roommates. And, you know, we used to have keg parties every Friday and Saturday night. And it was a Saturday morning. My roommates were tapping a keg. It was maybe 10 or 11 a.m. And I was reading Carl Sagan's Broke His Brain. And it occurred to me that I just wasn't like the people I was hanging out with. Hmm. And the woman I was dating at the time had uh, enrolled at VCU in Virginia Commonwealth. Uh, and she was like, you ought to try going to college. And like the next Monday, I enrolled at Northern Virginia Community College um, and ended up doing that for a year and a half. And then eventually seven full years later, I graduated with <laughs> a four-year degree in accounting. And flunked out, I'm trying to remember, at least two times, maybe three. Of college. Of college. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Once when I was in Harrisonburg at James Madison University, I lasted there two and a half semesters. And then uh, twice, yeah, it was three times, twice at VCU. Yeah. But I got really lucky. After the second time, I was enrolled in the accounting program there. The gentleman, John Sperry, will never forget this man, who was the head of the accounting program, said, when you're ready, I want you to come back. I'm going to help you finish. Mm-hmm. And, and I will guarantee you, you will get a job. Mm-hmm. And he was true to his word. And in between there, um, 1984, uh, I met my wife, who was the office manager of the bar. I was, I was a bartender. So it wasn't exactly good for personal habits, you know, getting off work at 2 a.m. and cracking a bottle of Stoli. It was fun for a while. It wasn't very good for me. And you as a fitness professional would be like, oh, my God. Because I was running about seven or eight miles a day at the time. I was also probably knocking off a liter of vodka a day. Um, But I met my wife. Her mother was very clear there's not a chance in the world you're going to marry my daughter unless you finish college. So with a little help, I actually got reoriented. Yeah. That's, that's the motivation. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, I will tell you the only reason my son finished college because the woman he ended up marrying, we met her his freshman year. He had a little easier, he had a little more help than I did because he was at Hopkins, not at Northern Virginia community college. Um, Well, and he had some guidance going into college too. Well, the only thing I ever wanted to achieve was to give him an opportunity that I never had, Mm -hmm. right? Very simple. To not have to fight and claw to get through. Uh, And and again, at that time, very clearly had ADHD. No idea. No idea. Self-medication, inability to focus for long periods of time, really deep bursts of creativity, all that stuff existed, Mm -hmm. but there was no diagnosis. I mean, Ned Hallowell's book didn't exist. So regardless, um, you know, I ended up finishing and true to his word, 
I went to interview at Accenture, which was the management information consulting division of Arthur Anderson at the time, uh, did not get a second interview. So, you know, went back and talked to John and was like, John, I think I fouled this all up. Uh, and he, he was an amazing man. There were lots of people who have a similar story from Virginia Commonwealth. Mm. Um, he made a phone call that day. The next day I got another phone call and went and interviewed with one of the Accenture partners who happened to be based in Richmond. Um, cause Accenture's office at that time on the, in that area was in DC. Uh, and he was very clear. He was like, I'm going to give you a job. Don't mess it up. That's not exactly what he said, but fairly close. Um, and my promise to him was, unless you fire me, I'm here for at least five years so that you can earn your investment back. Because mm -hmm. that was basically the, Accenture had a very large commitment to training and development. And, and I knew from studying the firm that new employees were really not profitable until like the third or fourth year. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a commitment I made and I was there for 14 years. Yeah. So you made good on it. Worked for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. The uh, uh, sponsorship, I think, is the word that I've heard given to that, where someone who has the position of power and connections, relationships, whatever that is, gives a opportunity, opens up an opportunity because of their relationships and their connections, they open up an opportunity for someone that otherwise wouldn't have had that opportunity that they believe will rise to the rise of the position. And I've heard somebody name, like name that sponsorship before. I like that word um, because it's like you put your name on somebody. Like, like I put my yeah, name I mean, on I, it was kind of like, you know, don't make me look bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to think that I, if you would talk to him today, that I didn't make him look bad, but yeah. you know, all you can do is go out there and give it all you have, right? If you give it all you have, there isn't anything else left. Yeah. What, um, what was different about that? Was it that sponsorship? Was it that person that you were doing it for that was different than like when you were going to college and those moments that you filled out of college? Like what, what was, I've always enjoyed working. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I've always had, even before I went to college, I was for the most part working two jobs. I was, I wasn't when I was an auto mechanic because that's a very pretty highly paid uh, career. But before that I was driving an auto parts truck and working in a gas station at night pumping gas. Cause otherwise I couldn't pay my bills. Yeah. That's never been an issue for me. I, I've always had good work ethic, whether that's genetic or taught, don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's, the the ability and willingness to work hard and long has never been an issue. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a grinder by nature. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like why, why? you know, I <laughs> unable to do that in school versus I think it's pretty easy, right? I mean, right now, if I want to, I can stand my desk up, stand up, walk around the office. We can have this conversation. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. anybody viewing it might say, okay, this guy's like really freaky, but you know, nonetheless, I can do that, right? I mean, I don't sit at this desk very long. Like, I'll spend 10 minutes reviewing somebody's plan. I'll mark it up, make my comments for the one pager that we use to summarize people's plans, send it over to Melissa. She'll fix it up. I don't spend 
I do spend a lot of review time, but in 10 minute spurts. So I don't have to sit, I mean, sitting in a classroom, even today when I know how to do it, like going to conferences and sitting in educational sessions is excruciatingly hard. Yeah. Painful. Yeah. And would I, would I really like to crack a beer or two while I'm doing that? Yes. I haven't had a drink for 35 years. There's a very good reason for that. Um, and I'm not going back, but I sure do want to. <laughs> and if we ever go to a conference together, like if I'd been able to come down to ETF exchange, uh, uh, you know, you would have seen me in the back of the room wandering around because I just, I can't sit still. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really hard. Let's um, dig in on that a little bit because I know part of your story is that you, you didn't always know that you had ADHD. You didn't know, you knew there was a lot of unfinished business in your life that, or lots of moments where you could go deeper into a subject or an an idea or a relationship that other people didn't have that ability to do, but you didn't have a name for it. I think part of it was that the name wasn't there. And didn't exist. Didn't I, exist. I don't know when Ned Hallowell's book would, was written. I should pull it off the shelf. I keep a copy here but, to uh, revisit it. But you got to, you got to hear I, directly from him, right? I think it was the mid eighties. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, my, my son, um, his, his school, uh, had an, a, a leadership event. Uh, and, and, uh, it was a symposium, I think they called it. And he was one of the speakers. And I was sitting in the back of the room, listening to him speak. And it's the first time I'd ever heard of ADHD and he's describing all the markers. And I was just like, ding, 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 ding. There's like 14 or 16 of them. And I was like, like, that's like all of me. And I, and, and I would guess at that point in my life, I probably hadn't shed much of a tear over anything. I was raised very traditionally like that. Um, and I literally walked out of the back of the St. Christopher's auditorium, went into the med's room and just was, I wouldn't say bawling, but I was definitely shedding a large number of tears. Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to go out in public yeah. looking like that. Yeah. Um, and I went home and bought the book and read it. And I was like, that's me. And I went and talked to my personal physician, who was a, a friend of ours, known him a long time. He was doing holistic medicine in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he just didn't call it that. And he was like, you ought to go see a, you know, a, a, a mental health professional and sent me off to see somebody. It's the whole Jewish mafia. He was a Jewish man. <laughs> Refer me to a Jewish guy. There, there is definitely a Jewish mafia, especially in the medical profession. Um, Virtually all my physicians have been uh, Jewish folks. Um, and I spent an hour with him and he, you know, ran all the tests and he's like, oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I've been medicated ever since. And I had already quit drinking by then, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I definitely have no need to self-medicate now because I have proper medication. Right, right. <laughs> but that, that was literally the genesis of it. And, and I walked out of there 
And one of the revelations I walked out of there with is your current career, no matter how successful you've been, is the wrong place for you to be. Mm. It just didn't match up with and that was it. my behavior set and who I am. And, and I had to work so hard on my weaknesses in that business mm. that I never got to do anything with my strengths. Mm. That was it, Accenture. Because it was always addressing my weaknesses. And that is no way to live a life. Yeah. So. I mean, my employees now, I don't spend much time on their weaknesses unless it's clearly getting in the way of either teamwork or client service. I really couldn't care less. What I care about is what strengths can you bring to this? Mm. The mm. fact that you might not be able to curl a lot, what, if, if, if you're somebody who's a core strength person, who cares? Right. I mean, who cares? Mm -hmm. Unless for some reason you want big biceps. I, I mean, so I don't worry about my folks' strengths. I worry about how do we, how, uh, my folks' weaknesses. How do we optimize your strengths? That's all I ever think about. And how do I make this an environment where you can apply what you're really good at? Yeah. We can go find somebody who's good at what you're not good at. Like Angela is really good at detail. I'm not a detail guy. There's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. We need somebody who's good at detail because it's not me. <laughs> I love that. So that's sometimes she's too detailed, right? Because your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness, period. Right. Um, but that's how I've learned to operate because I spent all of my developmental professional time when I was at Accenture, no fault of Accenture. Yeah. That's this is how corporate America works. Yeah. Focused on eliminating your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. That's true. How, um, so but that was a, just a massive, massive revelation. Yeah, so I also learned that I don't have a character flaw. My brain is wired differently from other people. That is, it's a, not a character flaw. It's just different. Yeah. Is that something that you had carried with you up to that point? Oh, hell yes. You wonder why you can't do things. You wonder why you get counsel that says, you know, you need to keep quiet in big meetings. Don't contradict the senior executive when they say something no matter how inaccurate it is. And I'm like, blurred it right out. That's like cold, totally wrong. Well, nobody who's making a couple million dollars a year in a corporate environment wants to hear that in the middle of a meeting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whether that's right or wrong doesn't matter. It's not a socially acceptable behavior. Yeah. And was, so I got all kinds of feedback to... around that and I could never eliminate it. Yeah. I not only couldn't eliminate it, I could barely improve it. And, and so you begin to wonder what's wrong with you. Why can't you do fundamental things that your peers are doing easily? Like what? Now I had certain skills that they couldn't do at all, yeah. but nobody really cared that much about that because I couldn't do some of the, now to be fair, some of those things are fundamental skills. You need to be good in that business. Yeah. And that was my, my realization. I'm not going to be good at those things. It's not that there's anything wrong with me. I need to go find something I can be good at with who I am. And so I'm here. If somebody doesn't like me, then they're not a client. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you. We both get to choose. You, but I mean, you were, gosh, you were finding this out. You're already married. You, your son was in college. Yeah, I was 44. I was 44 years old. Yeah. 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 So I had all the overhead of a successful corporate career. Yeah. Big old renovated house in an expensive neighborhood. Kid going to private school. You know, three expensive cars, blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, you're going to start over. Mm. Yeah. 
because you had managed. To so say my wife was frightened is beyond. It's, okay. I couldn't describe it. I wasn't going to ask, but uh, now that you've opened it up, when you went well, back hey, the to great her. Thing was she, was supportive. she was like, I know you're miserable. I, uh, I want you to go do something you're not miserable at. Yeah. But yes, I'm. this scares me. Yeah. I mean, I was making the, I think my final year's comp there, 99 was 250. Mm. Yeah, 99. So call it 750 today, something like that, if you do the math. Mm -hmm. Five, somewhere between six and seven. I mean, it was real money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just walked away from it with no idea what I was going to do. Hmm. That takes a certain amount of um, belief in yourself, I'll call it. Because I wasn't a super yes. self-confident person from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, when you get negative feedback all your life, it's say, hard to be self-confident. I was about to say, I'm sure those messages in your head were all... all oh, they're all negative. Mm-hmm. They're uh, from school, everything. Mm -hmm. And I barely graduated from high school. Yeah. And I went to VCU because they would admit me and because I could afford it. Right. Right. I mean, the. It sounds like the. driving force for a lot of your success up to that point was you just running away from the criticism. That's probably accurate. I never thought of it that way. I, that is probably accurate. I, I just, for some reason, I've always been able to just put one foot in front of the other one, regardless of what happens. Yeah. And that's and when and if anybody ever asked me and many people have, I don't know about many, some people have, you know, what do you consider to be the most important factor in success? I said, if you don't quit, you can't fail. Just put one foot in front of the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's just the old time I've tried many things that didn't work, but I haven't failed. Yeah. So just keep trying something until you find something that works. Yeah. And it's not it ain't genius. I mean <laughs> I'm not Stephen Hawking and never will be. No, it's not genius, but it is, it is a very gritty way to live life sometimes. That's a good way to describe it. And I'm okay with that. And you're okay with Nobody's that. Nobody's ever going to accuse me of being smooth. That's for sure. <laughs> and, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the, the way that you grow up, the way that you grew up, lent itself to you being okay with gr like just grit, just de sheer determination to, to make it. And I just didn't know any better. If I wanted to eat, I had to cook food. If I wanted to have clean clothing, I had to do laundry because mm -hmm. there wasn't anybody there to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, It's just, I would call it, I just didn't know any better. Yeah. I never seen any. I'd never seen another any other model, because I'd never been close enough to anybody to see how their family operated until I met my wife. I just never seen another model. Yeah. I'd never seen a family model where, like, I mean, she, to this day, she talks to her sister at least once every day. Mm -hmm. She talks to her brother at least once every day. Mm -hmm. She talks to her father every day. She talked to her mother every day. If her mother was still alive. 
Yeah, it was, I'm just fundamentally didn't understand it. I'm like, okay, this is really weird. Yeah. And where, so, so what did, what did you do when you, how did you learn new things? Like, especially in those situations where we, we get so much of that. I feel like I parent so much because of the modeling and the imprinting of my parents on me. Where, where did you? Yeah, but you had imprinting of your parents. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I didn't have that. You didn't have that. So what did you do? Because, I mean, what did you do? Well, it's, my mother-in-law told my wife, I think, after probably the first time I met them, yeah. um, that uh, I must have been raised in a barn. Because I didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. You just you just learn over time, right? You see how it works for other people. And it, it, you have to be open enough in your thinking to think that, no matter how high, because when I was like 20, I thought I knew everything. I had a great model. Everything worked. You know, I understood how the world worked. Of course, that may be a lot of 20-year-olds, but I realized how idiotic it was then. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm I'm constantly learning stuff to this day. I, I In my former firm, when I was leaving, one of the folks who I was friends with said, the thing about you and he <laughs> was having fun calling me old he's 20 years younger than me was he said the thing about you is you're just relentlessly improving and i think that is accurate yeah. i don't know why but i mean over here on my desk are three books there's always three books on my desk there's another two at home there's another one on my kindle um i read a ton of stuff drives my team here crazy sometimes you know this idea that idea i just that's just the way that i function yeah so what what i think makes you different and what i think is a determining characteristic in your ability to turn all this around is your willingness to be transparent and authentic. And it was just something that I, I picked up on when I, when I was reading back through the notes that I took while we were talking about your story. And um, I looked up authenticity. <laughs> uh, I Googled the definition and it said the, the quality of being authentic. <laughs> so I'm like, that's not helpful. Okay. It's so, not a very helpful definition. <laughs> I hate that. Um, so I Googled the definition of authentic and it said being actually and exactly what is claimed, being fully trustworthy as according with fact. And just me kind of wondering here, you seem so comfortable with owning your story with that is me. I did live that experience. I did do those things. I did fail out of college. And the power there is in owning your story and embracing it, not as the person that you wish you weren't, but as the person that you were and the person that you grew from cannot, in my opinion, be un- understated. And, and so I'm just going to throw it out there that, I, you know, the ability to 
to make the changes and to turn the ship in the way that you have in life, I fully believe has direct connections with your willingness to embrace your life as it came to you and be transparent and authentic about it. Yeah. I don't don't know. I, you know, there's all this stuff that flies around, around authenticity and everything. Um, I know that's a, 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 a kind of a, I'll call it a trendy thing. I don't know. I just view it as, you, you know, you, you are who you, you yeah, are. It's yeah, not rocket yeah. science. Yeah. There's more trouble caused by people trying to be something they aren't than by people being what they are. Yeah. And uh, I would say that if we went back and looked at, let's call it my eight-year-old to maybe 25, 26-year-old years, there wasn't a lot of honesty that came out of me. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was intending to be somebody else. I just wasn't very proud of Mm -hmm. who I was or what I had done with that time. Not knowing that any of the things around, you know, you only get 24 hours a day. You can't manufacture time. I'm a big believer that time is the only asset you have. Everything else can be manufactured, but I didn't know that then. And so I've been on a mission kind of ever since to just be, you are who you are. And if people like you, great. If people don't like you, great. Mm-hmm. 